In the world of organized crime, the tradition is that murders do not go unavenged. Still, traditions have a way of changing, even in the mafia. Patrick Presenzano shot four times, his throat cut. Presenzano was allegedly connected to reputed mob boss Carmine Galenti. Police were called to the scene by a tow truck operator who found two bodies slumped in the back seat of a late model car. The ability of the mob to kill people in cold blood and get away with it gives them the ability to terrorize other people. Law enforcement officials say there is now a power vacuum at the top of La Cosa Nostra, with all of its old leaders either in jail or in graves. You have said, I wish I could talk to my younger self. Uh, what would you say to that younger self, if you could? That uh, if you follow a life of the street like I did, eventually you're going to pay for those consequences, and so are your family and friends, anybody that's around that circle. Now, growing up in a place called Woodhaven, uh, you guys nicknamed it Death Haven. Why? Well, because mostly everybody I grew up with has uh, been killed, murdered, uh, OD'd from drug use. So it was uh, a neighborhood that uh, eventually you're going to find death in your in your life somewhere. Now, when you were young, you know, what sort of life did you have? I mean, were you familiar with the, the, the gangsters, the mob? Did you know who they were, what they were doing? Yeah, you know, I grew up with uh, all my dad's friends were very famous gangsters like Lucky Luciano's first cousin, Blackie. Charlie Luciano was a made man with the Gambino family and my baseball coach became the neighborhood boss, Andy Ruggiano, uh, from Murder, Inc., and uh, guys with Albert Anastasia. So, yeah, I was very familiar uh, growing up with all the bosses of uh, the major crime families. Now, were you picked up by them as, a, you know, a talent for their activities, or did you seek them out? No, I was picked up by them. I used to work in a delicatessen on 79th Street and. Next door was my girlfriend's father, was a made guy, and around the corner was his brother. And they would come in the store, and I was a baby at the time. 12, 14 years old, I started, and uh, they started asking me to run errands, and eventually it, it goes up from there. Now, you became an enforcer uh, for, for the mob. Um, I mean, what kind of a guy were you in those days? How, how dangerous Actually, as a kid, I wasn't dangerous. I grew up with a lot of dangerous people in my neighborhood, gangs and different. My friends were very dangerous. I was a little more meek and uh, I played sports. I was a big baseball player, uh, handball and stickball and all the sports that you play in the inner city you know, streets. But I wasn't really dangerous. I became very dangerous later on. Mm. Um, how did you become an enforcer? Uh, originally, I started with a, a guy named George Gaddy. And uh, he was a bookmaker, local bookmaker, and he asked me to go collect money. Uh, you know, initially it was just collect money without hurting anybody. But when guys end up not paying or they were warned to pay, he eventually asked me to go baseball bat somebody, which I did. And that started it. Yeah. And you eventually ended up shooting people. Eventually shooting, stabbing, batting, piping, whatever. And uh, also myself getting those things uh, done to me. A federal prosecutor, Jay Trezevant, said that uh, John was a holy terror on the street. Other competing criminals were really afraid of him. Yeah, well, you know, I, I said something in, in court at one time. I says, my uh, face is my wallet, so I never wore masks. And I was, uh, I would have warned somebody once. And uh, after that first warning, I wanted the reputation that, uh, you know, pay. 
or if you don't, that something's going to happen. And, you know, by doing that, I was trying not to hurt as many people, thinking that they would understand that. But people are naive. They just never believe they'll be the next victim. Mm-hmm. Um, you said about one particular incident that these guys came on my property. I executed them. I gave them half a second to tell me who sent them, and I executed them. Yeah, I mean, you live in a dangerous life, so there is no middle ground. Um, if you're going to be there, uh, you've got to be very violent to survive. And uh, they came to kill me, so uh, yeah. they got what uh, I gave them what they were trying to give me. Yeah. Now, the the attraction, obviously, of the mafia life is the, the riches that it can bestow on people. What was it like? I mean, when the gang are pulling in between a million and two million every single month, I mean, you could yeah. buy what you wanted. I did buy what I wanted. I owned a 15-acre estate, seven-block driveway with a lake and built-in pool, three houses, outdoor boxing ring, pavilion to work out. You know, it was a dream as a poor kid coming from a, a poor family. Uh, but uh, I didn't read the small print. I tell her that's what I try to tell most of these kids. There'll be a p- price to pay, and I paid it. How did it go wrong? I mean, uh, how did you end up on the run? I was an Albanian in, in a world of Italian-American mafia that I understood more of the mob and the European mentality than these guys did. And when I went on the run and I was facing two RICO cases and life sentences, my bosses in the Gambino family were all rolling. They were all working with the government and making excuses why they were meeting with the government while I was sitting in those penitentiaries. So they betrayed me and uh, that ended it for me. Now, you, you went on the run. You were going from country to country, fake passports. I mean, it, it is just like a story from the movies. Yeah, but, the you know, the emotional pain you no know, one talks about. You know, physical pain we can all take. The emotional toll it took on my family, on my kids, uh, on myself, um, from country to country, from Africa to Cuba to Venezuela, army bases I lived on in Colombia. So I went around the world and uh, with the America, you know, I was on the run and uh, Interpol's most wanted and all that. And eventually they caught up with me, spent three years in those concentration camps in Brazil. And you've described them as the most dangerous and depraved prisons in the world. I mean, and violence by inmates, by wardens, but also even the wardens would fight with each other. One warden killed the other warden because of the money that's involved in the prison system in Brazil. He actually had him executed in front of his child, in front of his school, uh, while his bodyguard stood down. So that's the the, the corruption. That's the mob mentality, no different than what we do uh, as gangsters they were doing as law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you survive in a prison like that? I mean, did your reputation come ahead of you or did you just try to keep your head down? No, my reputation came ahead of me. I was all over Associated Press. I was the headlines of the papers. A lot of the gang members already knew me before I walked in from the streets. I had some alliances. I had a very good friend of mine, Klaus, that was also uh, in prison. And uh, we were good friends from since the 90s. From uh, He's a Dan- Danish guy. So we uh, had an alliance and we brought in a group of guys with us from different countries and started maneuver around. Now, you eventually end up back in the United States and you are facing a prison sentence. I mean, uh, based on your track record, it should have been multiple life sentences, um, but you didn't serve life. How did you manage? Well, you get plea options and plea deals like anybody does in in the States. If you get two murders, four murders, five murders, depending on what they know, how much evidence 
they'll ask you to to, to plea out to as, as many murders as you did do. And uh, they offer you a deal. I, I took the deal and uh, I decided to talk back against the uh, mafia that was talking against me and betraying me and with the government when I got the paperwork on all these guys and Nana Boss and all his captains were already cooperating, wearing wires, uh, Gotti's son and all his captains were already cooperating. So I, you know, once I found out how much betrayal was going on in their world and that I was living in and being loyal to, uh, I decided it was, it was finished and whatever deal the government offered me, I said, yeah, I'll take it, which was to sign a life agreement uh, that have a lifetime sentence and possibly they'll let me out which they don't tell you if they're going to let you out or what year or anything like that. You eventually got out in 2013. Um, when you walk out of prison after serving that time, uh, how do you feel? I mean, do you feel vulnerable that someone might still have some vendetta against you and try to deal with you? You know, I never worried about that. Uh, to be honest, I moved right back to New York. I'm not like the typical Italian bosses that go run and hide somewhere else after they cooperate. They betrayed me. I didn't betray them. I was the guy doing the work, not them. It's not what people really think. They get their reputation and names off of guys like me that they're, they're asking to do the dirty work for them. So I know who's capable, who isn't in that world for the most part. There's a handful of tough guys in that life. Yeah. But to, for the honesty of that life, 99% of them are cowards. And you got the 1% of shooters. You've turned your life around. I mean, you're an author, an actor, a political commentator. You speak to many youth groups, uh, try to keep people on the straight and narrow. How is that working out for you? Well, you know, you know it's, a, it's a hard mix because you've got to give 80% of your past life to get the attention, to give them the 20% of the message that they need to hear for, in order for them to listen to you and respect the message and understand the history of the mob, the true mob of the American mafia. And uh, I try to do that by uh, giving these guys the real about the shootings, the uh, violence. And people question it, but they don't understand that the only way to get to these kids is for them to respect what you used to do. So they'll listen to what you're doing now, and hopefully they follow what I'm doing now. Yeah. Um, what are your reflections, John, about you know the, the, the Italian mafia? I don't know how decimated it has been by all of the revelations and the people who went to jail. But there's a Chechen mafia, there's a Russian mafia, there's an Albanian mafia, uh, probably more mafias. I mean, what are things like in your city? I probably got more power around the world than I did when I was active. And the Albanian mafia is uh, very strong in every country around the world now. It's not a closed country like it used to be. So, you know, when people talk to me about the mob and, and violence, the truth is we come from a very violent culture. We come from a suppressed culture. So I understand who's really violent and who isn't in, in, in the streets and in the world. Uh, the Italian mafia became a, they live by rules that they don't follow. They break every rule that they have. And I'm talking about the American Italian mafia. Uh, that they don't follow. Um, and if they don't follow and stand with structure, there is no strength behind their organization. And the problem with them is they they break and cooperate and do different things. And there's no consequences behind their action like there used to be in my day where when you break and, and you break a rule, you're killed for it. That doesn't even exist with them anymore. Yeah. Um, do you think you were always going to be vulnerable because as an Albanian rather than an Italian, you never could be what they call a made man? I don't see myself as vulnerable. I've been home 10 years and I live in New York. I live in those streets. And uh, 
I guess they have the opportunity because I'm a very open guy like that to, to try to kill me. But again, uh, I have more power than all of them. If I wanted it, I don't want it. So uh, they're a lot more vulnerable than I am. And I'm very capable of handling myself if somebody comes at me. So um, I don't really lose any sleep over that. I just try to move forward and live my life. I don't bother them. And uh, I try to give and help kids' lives. That's about where I stand. I, my uh, my ability of uh, just trying to help yeah. kids and, and the, my past is really what, my, what motivates me to live yes. where I live and do what I do. Okay, so your past is your calling card and then you hopefully do some good. Um, finally, John, you're not looking over your shoulder all the time then? Not at all. I uh, live a very open life and uh, I'm, not, I'm not even a little bit concerned about that, no. John Alite, thank you very much for joining us on the program. Pat, thank you very much for having me. God bless everybody in Ireland. Thank you.